Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you who dwell in unapproachable light, in your light do we see light. Would you shine light in the darkness of our minds as we read your word this morning and hear it proclaimed to us. Enlighten the eyes of our hearts and soften them that we may be shaped by your word. May we not have itching ears seeking to hear just what is suited to our own desires, but rather a ready heart to hear it and do that which is pleasing to you, our God. We pray in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. you please open your Bibles to our sermon text, Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8, page 948 in the Pew Bibles. And we'll also reread our text from last time, so we'll start reading at the beginning of chapter 12. So Romans chapter 12. Beginning in verse 1. Here now, this is the holy, infallible word of God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let me ask you, what is the greatest gift you've ever received? If you're young, your mind might go to Christmas morning with a beautifully, a pile of beautifully wrapped presents under the tree. That one bigger present set apart. Perhaps it's a brand new bike. And if you're older, perhaps you think of the gift of a wedding ring, or the gift of your bride's hand on your wedding day, or perhaps you think of the birth of a child. But far greater than even those wonderful gifts is the gift of eternal life, the gift of dwelling in the joyous presence of your God and Redeemer forever. This gift does not come alone. Along with it come a myriad of other gifts, what our confession calls all the benefits which we receive along with our union with Christ through faith. In our passage this morning, Paul highlights one benefit in particular, our spiritual gifts. 
the gifts which Christ the head gives to the members of his body for the building up of his body. And as we saw last time in chapter uh, 12, we've entered into the second half of Paul's letter to the Romans, where he's transitioned from the explanation of the gospel to its practical application to our lives. And in the first two verses, he has called us to present our lives as a sacrifice to God, living, holy, and acceptable to God. This begins with a renewal of the mind. Now Paul will continue to flesh that out. What does this renewal of the mind look like in the verses before us this morning as he begins with a universal call to humility? Then he introduces the central illustration that describes what the church is like. The metaphor of the body. Christ is the head and we are the members of the body. And then he calls us to use the gifts that Christ has given to us for building up the body. As we do these things, it's all part of that living, holy, well-pleasing sacrifice. The continual worship which is due to our God who has saved us by his mercy. I'm not usually one to go out of my way for alliteration in my outlines, but I did manage to come up with three points that all start with you this morning. So we have first a universal call to humility, second, unity and diversity in the body of Christ, and third, use your gifts to serve the body. So first, the universal call to humility. Verse three, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Note that Paul addresses this command to everyone among you. In chapter 11, he had written, now I am speaking to you Gentiles. And there he had warned them, so do not become proud, but fear, verses 13 and 20. And now he's writing to everyone, to both Jews and Gentiles in Rome, and he issues this universal call to humility. Now here in verse 3, he uses the verb to think four times. Twice he uses it in the simple form, simply to think, and twice in the compound form. So he says, don't think more highly, that's a compound, than you ought to simply think, but think, simple, as you ought to think. Think soberly. The Greek lexicon points out that this last verb, to think soberly, to think rightly, it's the opposite of being insane, out of your mind. And so this is an example of the renewed mind, which stands in stark contrast to the darkness, the futility of mind that we saw back in chapter 1. To think rightly means not only to not give into pride, but also to not think too lowly of yourself. There is such a thing as low self-esteem, even though self-esteem is a modern term that we tend to stay away from. But the concept simply refers to how you regard yourself. You must think about yourself with sober judgment. And if you think too lowly of yourself, that destroys your ability to serve others. Because you think you can't do anything. You think too lowly of your abilities. The last phrase of the verse says, each according to the measure of faith 
that God has assigned. And this phrase is surprisingly difficult to interpret. And some scholars believe it refers to a varying amount of faith. That is, some are given by God a large amount of faith and others less faith. And although it is for all a faith in the same Christ and a sufficient saving faith. And that's one possible interpretation. However, I agree with a a second interpretation. That understands this to say each according to the standard of faith that God has assigned. In other words, Paul is referring to the standard of faith, which is the same for all. This is the Christian faith. The implication of this is that each of us has great value because our value is rooted in Christ and the love that he has shown to us, the love that we have received and have now embraced through faith in him. So before Paul gets into the diversity of the gifts in the coming verses, he first points to the unity we have in the one Christian faith here in verse 3. A unity which both humbles us out of our pride, but also lifts us up from a low view of ourselves as well. Why was it necessary for Paul to begin this section with a call to humility and sober thinking? I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis's masterful chapter on pride and humility in mere Christianity. Lewis calls pride the great sin, and humility is its antidote. Pride is what sets men against one another. As Paul is introducing us to the life, to life in the body of Christ, he must first tackle the central sin of pride, which would cause the church to rip itself apart. Another possibility is that there was a problem in Rome with some overvaluing the gifts that were more spectacular, such as healing, tongues, prophecy, leading those with these gifts to pride to pride, and to devalue those who had the other gifts. We don't know for sure if this was the problem, but it's possible, especially in light of the fact that Paul is writing from Corinth. And we know this was a major problem in Corinth from the letters Paul writes to the church there. That's why 1 Corinthians 12, which we read earlier, is followed by 1 Corinthians 13, which emphasizes that even more more important than all the gifts is love, which Paul calls a still more excellent way. Love, which binds all the gifts together. All the gifts in the world are useless if you don't have love, if you don't love one another. So even if this problem was not nearly as severe in Rome as it was in Corinth, Paul knew human nature. He knew that difference often leads to division. And that's why he begins by a universal call to humility and sober thinking. Let's brings us to our second point, unity and diversity in the body of Christ. As I read verses 4 and 5 again, I want to put special emphasis on the logical terms and the numerical terms. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. 
imagery of the body used to depict the relationship between the members of the church with Christ as the head is familiar probably to all of you. Paul uses it throughout his letters and it's found in its fullest form in 1 Corinthians 12, but it's also in Ephesians and Colossians. I hope you notice as I read the verses, Paul is highlighting the parallels between the body and the church. How both contain this overarching unity, but underneath of that there is great diversity. In the body there is one body, but has many different members, each with different functions. And in fact, if all the members do not fulfill their functions, the body cannot survive. In fact, we often don't realize how critical some small part of your body is until disease or cancer strikes that organ. Then all of a sudden you learn about the important role of your kidney or your small intestine or your liver. How you cannot live without this key member of your body doing its job. You never knew that your kidneys were filtering your blood about 40 times a day till they stopped doing so. And all of a sudden your blood is filling up with toxins. Paul says the church is just like the body. There is one church of the Lord Jesus Christ, but it has many members, and each one is different. Each one has a slightly different function, a slightly different mixture of gifts for serving the body, and yet each one is needed for the well-being of the body. Imagine if the body were made up of all hands. It would be unable to walk, unable to talk. I know for most, when they're looking for a new church, a new church to join and be a part of, it's natural to look for a church that has at least a few people in the same stage of life and similar circumstances. We want diversity, but we want a few people like ourselves as well. It can also be difficult to be already rooted in a church and find yourself feeling alone. Perhaps you're the only young single or the only widower, the only veteran, whatever it may be. What do we do with these sorts of challenges? Certainly we can pray for another to come along in the same stage of life. We can also pray for and work towards deep friendships that cross these barriers. Our unity in Christ is deeper than the differences. As Paul says, we are members of one another. And so we see that The body is an overarching unity made up of a diversity of members. For the body to flourish, each member must know his place, his function, to think rightly about himself, and he must serve his function, the good of the entire body. One thing worth noting, even as Paul is writing to the church in Rome, this is not as you might assume just a single congregation meeting together in one location. As we'll see in chapter 16, this church was composed of several house churches scattered across the city. Yet as Paul writes to them, he still makes clear that they are to think of themselves as one body in Christ, members of one another. They are the one church in Rome, even though they meet in separate houses, and each congregation has its own pastor and elders. So we too must remember that our oneness in Christ extends 
beyond those with whom we share friendship, far beyond those we meet together with for worship every week. In fact, the better our congregation is doing here in Hackettstown, in serving one another, the better we can serve the body in other places, whether here nearby us in New Jersey or in other parts of the world. Having explored the overarching principle of unity and diversity in the body of Christ, Paul now urges us to third, use your gifts to serve the body. Verse 6 begins, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. And Paul has never visited the church in Rome, and yet he knows that they are a gifted church. He uses two related Greek words in this verse. First, we have charismata, translated gift, and second, charis, translated grace. That is to say, the spiritual gifts are gifts of God's free grace. And as you can hear from the term charismata, every believer is in some sense a charismatic Christian, a spiritually gifted Christian. And we won't go too deeply into this this morning, but this term, charismatic, today has come to refer to those who believe in and practice the gifts of tongues, prophecy, and healing, and even some who believe that the office of apostle is still active today. As for our church, we believe that these gifts were foundational. As Paul writes in Ephesians 2.20, the household of God built on the foundation of of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. And so these gifts were given during the age of the apostles for the laying of the foundation of the church. But now that the foundation is complete, they are no longer needed and so no longer given by God today. And yet we are still small c charismatics in that we receive and practice the spiritual gifts accepting those which were only for laying the foundation. And as Paul provides a list of gifts here, it's worth noting that only two of the gifts, prophecy and teaching, are found in the lists in his other letters. The rest are unique to this list. Some make much of these lists as if every gift must be enumerated on one list or another. But I believe the fact that each list is different shows us there is not an exact list or an exact number of clearly identified New Testament spiritual gifts. Although, of course, some like teaching, prophecy, healing are very clear. The point is that any way that God has given you an ability to serve, you are to use that to serve the church. Whether it's on this list or another list or not on any list at all. Use your gifts to serve the church. Now let's look at each of these here briefly. First we have, if prophecy in proportion to our faith. Prophecy is an authoritative revelation from God. And as I've already said, it was given by God to lay the foundation of the church during the time of the apostles. Here Paul, by saying that the prophet is to prophesy Uh, in proportion to our faith, he's basically saying the prophet is only to say what God has revealed to him. Our faith is that which God has revealed to us. 
And our faith is the Christian faith, faith in God and in his son, Jesus Christ. And so although the gift of prophecy is no longer given, the modern analog to this is preaching, which in fact the Puritans often referred to with this term prophecy, although they certainly understood the distinction. They knew what they were talking about. In preaching, we expound the prophecy which is found in the scripture. We apply it to men's hearts. In this too, we must not go beyond scripture. We must preach only what has been given to us by God. And we must not bind men's consciences with human traditions. Second, we have service. If service in our serving. This is the term diakonia, from which we get the office of deacon. It can also be translated not only serving, but also ministry. Now, Paul may have the office of deacon in view here, but that's not necessarily the case because it's a very general, general term for service. In fact, I would go so far as to say what Christian does not have the gift of service. What Christian is not called to serve others in one way or another? In fact, we often categorize the gifts into the various ways that they serve others. Sometimes we contrast elders who focus on the spiritual care of the congregation with the deacons who focus on the care of physical needs. This also lines up with another distinction we often make between ministries of word and ministries of deed. In all these, there's one thing in common. They are all service. And we are all called to serve God by serving one another. How are you using your gift of service? Third, we have the one who teaches in his teaching. In contrast to the prophet who speaks what is revealed to him by God, the teacher expounds on God's revealed word and explains it to God's people. Here, Paul calls the teacher to use his teaching gift faithfully in service to Christ's body. Now, there are some who are set apart for teaching roles in a more public way in front of a lot of people in the church. But many are called to teach in smaller ways to fewer people. For example, Titus calls the older women to teach the younger women. All parents are, of course, teach, called to teach and train up their children. Even older children often find themselves teaching younger children. Children, have you thought about that? How you might already be testing out if you have the gift of teaching. Of course, teaching is a wonderful gift for it allows us to equip others for service. As Paul writes in Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. At the same time, we must be very careful what we teach, for we will be held accountable if we lead others astray. James writes, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. James 3.1 The teaching is a wonderful gift, but one to be used with great care. Fourth, we have the one who exhorts in his exhortation. This word for exhortation can also be translated to comfort or to encourage. It has that sense of helping someone to press forward, whatever their emotional state may be. As you may recall, Paul's companion was called Barnabas, 
which means son of encouragement. And this name must have been given to him because he excelled in this gift. When I think of this gift, a particular man comes to my mind, the navigator staff who discipled me for four years in college. He was an encourager. Every time I met with him, I walked away encouraged, especially when I went in feeling down. And yet, that doesn't mean it was just flattery. Often I was challenged by his word. Often I was encouraged to take that action that needed to be taken. Do you have the gift of exhortation? Are you an encourager? And so use that to build up the body. Fifth, we have the one who contributes in generosity. The one who contributes or like the one who shares, do it in generosity. The term translated generosity can also mean with singleness of purpose. That is to say, don't give with ulterior motives. You are to give in love and to serve Christ and others, not seeking your own status. There are many rich atheist or agnostic philanthropists in the world today. What is their motive for their philanthropy? Of course, I don't know their hearts, but I do know they usually leave their name behind everywhere their money flows. And Jesus taught us, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you, Matthew 6, 3. When we think of giving, we think of giving money, but that's not necessarily the case, especially in the early church. Sharing would often have meant hospitality and offering food, offering shelter, giving clothing, whatever was needed. And I think that's especially important to remember today, especially if money is tight. You might not have much money to give, but you may still be able to give in other ways. In fact, I believe those with the gift of sharing are those who find creative ways to give at all times, no matter their circumstances, and a lack of resources is no hindrance to their generosity. As Paul writes concerning the churches in Macedonia, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity, 2 Corinthians 8.2. This is certainly a shining example of this gift of sharing. Six, we have the one who leads with zeal. The one who leads would certainly refer to the overseers of the church, the church elders. But again, this does not restrict this gift of leadership to those holding church office. The deacons also exercise leadership in overseeing the ministry of mercy. But all those who help to rally the troops, to lead and coordinate others in service, are exercising leadership to some degree. And so Paul urges those who lead to do so with zeal, with a sort of energy and enthusiasm that is infectious and causes others to follow. Seventh, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Doing acts of mercy refers to caring for those in need. It's closely related to the gift of sharing with generosity. It's also a ministry that is under the oversight of the deacons, but it's something all believers are called to do. Some are particularly sensitive to this, particularly gifted uh, in caring for those in need. It's easy to see how 
those who devote themselves to this could grow weary. And so Paul encourages them to carry on, to show mercy with cheerfulness. Now here it's worth mentioning that while each member has particular gifts, and we must use them, there are certain things like giving and showing mercy that all are commanded by Christ to do. And so you can never make the excuse, I don't have the gift of giving. I don't have the gift of mercy, so I'm exempt from the command. No. We are all called to do these things, even as we focus most of all on the areas of our particular gifts. And if there is a great need that goes beyond your ability, beyond your capacity, that is when you draw on those who are more gifted in that area. That's the beauty of the whole body working together in harmony. And we are one body in Christ. We are each members of one another, each serving in a variety of different ways. And we each need to be using our gifts so that the body might function and flourish and be built up. As Paul writes in Ephesians 4, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. One question you may be asking is, how do I know what my spiritual gift is? If you've ever taken our new members class, you know one tool we like to use is spiritual gift survey. This can be a help, but it only takes you so far. It can only help you to identify the strengths of abilities that you've already tried out, that you're already familiar with. But to get that far, you need to try things out, and that starts by actively serving in all sorts of ways. So the bottom line is, you need to start serving. You need to volunteer when opportunities arrive. You need to be, you need to find if you're drawn to certain things. You need to find if you Excel in certain areas and not in others. And in this way, your spiritual gifts will become clear. Even for an extraordinarily gifted apostle like Paul, all his gifts didn't simply appear suddenly out of nowhere. First, he had many years of training and study before his conversion. Then he received an outpouring of the Spirit in his conversion. And then he combined that with constant prayer extremely hard work, and a daily dying to himself as he served Christ. It was all these things coming together in Paul that led to his fruitful ministry. Certainly Paul was unique in the role that he was called to play in laying the foundation of the church. But the way he used the gifts he received, in constant prayer, with love for others, dying to self, all for Christ's glory, this is all an example that we ought to follow. As we close this morning, I want to circle back to our opening illustration. Children, think back to that best gift you've ever received, perhaps a Christmas gift or a birthday present. What was the first thing you wanted to do when you opened it? Certainly, you wanted to use it. You wanted to play with your new toy or your new bike. This applies to adult gifts as well, although in a slightly different way. When you received your engagement ring, you wanted to let the world know about the good news to show it off. And after you said your vows on your wedding day, 
Sure, you wanted to enjoy the reception, but then you wanted to get away on your honeymoon, to spend time together with your new spouse. You wanted to enjoy your gift. And after the birth of a new child, nothing was as sweet as cradling him or her in your arms. What Paul is urging you to do regarding your spiritual gifts in this passage is really the exact same thing. Since you have received your gift, use it. The only difference is that these gifts are not primarily for your own personal enjoyment. They are gifts that are to be used for the good of the whole body. You might say, isn't that kind of like giving mom a vacuum cleaner for her birthday? It's for the good of the whole family. Perhaps it is. You know what? I don't think there's as much stigma around giving dad the power tool he's been longing for for his birthday. It's for the good of the whole family. The key is using the gift for the good of others. And not only that, for the glory of Christ, the head of the body. Do you know what your gifts are? If not, simply begin serving in whatever ways you can, and they will become clear. And if you know your gifts, are you using them to serve? God's word is urging you to action as you present yourself to God as a living sacrifice. You do this not to earn your salvation, but as a response to the grace and mercy of God shown to you in Christ and received by faith alone. Therefore, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Let's pray. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we thank you most of all for the greatest gift, the gift of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the gift of eternal life, of being reconciled to you in him, the gift of adoption as sons, all the benefits we have received in him, and then this gift of the spiritual gifts you have given to each and every one of us. We pray, Lord, that having received these gifts, you would strengthen us to use them, to serve one another, that the whole body might be built up. We thank you for the days that you um, strengthen us to serve, but also the days when we are weak and you allow us to receive from the service of others. May it all be, uh, may it all be for your glory. Through Jesus' name we pray, amen.